Makers of Epic Pure Sunflower Oil, Purine and Pret Cooking Fat, Yum Yum Peanut Butter, Maple Margarine and Niblet's Cheese Twists present The Epic Casebook. In which Inspector Carr investigates. Newspapers and newspaper men have always had a fascination for me, as no doubt you've long since gathered. Tonight's dramatized version of the investigation into the murder of Paul Blake brings back to mind one of the most courageous journalists I've ever met. Paul was not only fearless in his literary craft, he displayed an honesty and an integrity that won him the respect and affection of all his colleagues. But more than this, he was a brilliant painter of words, able to instill into the mind's eye of his readers vivid images of the scenes as he saw them, to describe the characters involved with a clear-sighted brilliance few could match. I've always maintained that there's far too much confusion between the press barons, those who control the purse strings and whose main concern is profit, and press men like Paul Blake, dedicated to their craft. I remember when Paul resigned from one newspaper because of a disagreement with the proprietor's policy. Said Paul, the paper will surely sicken and die. It suffers from incipient thrombosis, inhibited circulation caused by a lot of clots. Well, that was Paul. A great loss to Fleet Street and his friends. Let me tell you about it. I've called my story Dead Lie. Be overjoyed watching the Kent County Constabulary try to solve Paul's death and waiting eight days before they sought the assistance of Scotland Yard. Operations here, Inspector. Paul Blake, murder case, sir. Well, the Kent police come through at last? Yes, sir. They were quite frank about it, sir. CIDs say that they thought they'd keep the investigation on their own ground as the victim was such a well-known journalist, sir. Say now they're sorry. They need our help after all. Inspector Westford. No, Inspector Westford, eh? I know him. Very good man. Wish he'd ask for our help sooner. All right, I'll just get through to Mason. Tell them that I should be over as soon as I can. Very good, sir. Well, while you're at it, tell Transport Control I want a car and a driver. Nice to see you again, Carr. I suppose you're not exactly pleased that we waited so long before calling in the yard. Well, not really. There must have been a very good reason for someone with your experience to throw out the sponge. Uh, the press have been on my heels. Oh, by the way, uh, how much do you know of the case? Well, I've got the bare facts from X branch. Paul Blake was a friend. Let's start from the beginning, shall we? Right. At exactly three minutes past two on the morning of April the 6th, the local operator answered the signal that a subscriber required his services. It proved to be Blake. Number, please. Police, quickly. Police? What number are you speaking from? No, don't waste time with silly questions. Hurry, this is Paul Blake of the Gazette. Someone is trying to... Hello? Hello, Mr. Blake? Hello? Oh, dear. Marston Police. Constable Fulton uh, speaking. Th this is the telephone exchange. Something peculiar going on at the Marston Country Club. And Mr. Blake asked to be put through to you, and, and just then there was a loud explosion, like an, a, a loud noise. I, I think you better look into it. Explosion, Mr. Blake, a writer. All right, I'll look into it. I see. And did he? Yes. 
Constable Fulton found the club in darkness except for one room. The room that contained the body of your friend. And that's the background. I don't mind telling you the case is an absolute swine. We whittled down the list of suspects to uh, half a dozen people and every one of them has a cast iron alibi. Oh, here's the dossier. The dossier contained a detailed analysis of the case. Put in a nutshell, it was this. At 1.30 that night, Paul Blake was very much alive, talking to five friends who were members of the club. The staff and everyone else had gone home. The group of six had a final nightcap at the bar and left, with Blake going to one of the residential cottages where he was spending the weekend. No one saw or heard him again, except the operator of the telephone exchange, who registered his call from the club and could swear that the explosion and the frantic pleas for help came at exactly three minutes past two. As I glanced through the statements made by those involved, it was clear that Westford was not exaggerating. Each seemed to have a cast-iron alibi. Oh, looks as though I'll have to pray for a miracle to solve this one. Hope you'll do. Every man at Fleet Street's after our scalps. Mm. Unless something happens soon, there's going to be questioning the house. Articles on the inefficient police force, that sort of thing. Oh, we'll try. Yeah, I don't have to tell you why I've uh, given instructions you are to receive every cooperation. Thanks. It looks as though I'm going to need it. I think I'll have a word with the woman on the exchange. I understand you're the lady who was on duty at the Marston Telephone Exchange when the call came through. That's right, sir. Now, in your statement, you said that the call came through at three minutes past two in the morning. That's so, Inspector. Exactly, three minutes past two? Yes, sir. Why are you so sure? Well, sir, every call that comes through is automatically recorded, as far as the time's concerned. Uh, besides which, I, I looked up at the big electric clock there. That was the time, all right. What's more, I immediately got through to the constable of the police station. You can ask him. Well, I'll take your word for it. How far am I from Dr. Ogden? Dr. Wilfred Ogden was the first name on Inspector Westford's list of suspects. He looked every inch the fashionable, prosperous country doctor. Yet despite an attempted air of self-assurance, it was apparent that the medical gentleman was distinctly uneasy. Uh, you were given a chance to peruse the statement you made to Inspector Westford? Of course I was. Why do you ask, Inspector? Are you sure it's correct in every detail, Doctor? Sure. Of course I'm sure. Well, I'm sorry to ask you the sort of questions you've already answered, but that's the way I work. Now, Doctor, I understand that Paul Blake was a friend of yours. Yes. Yes, uh, my wife and I met him through the club. Paul came down for weekends. I see. I believe you and your wife were two of the last to see Paul alive. Yes, that's right, Chief Inspector. My wife's American. As you know, Paul has visited the States many times. They were reminiscing. It was difficult to tear her away. Well, your wife knew Paul in the States, did she? Yes, knew each other quite well. In fact, uh, when I discovered that, I was rather jealous. No, 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 just a minute, Inspector. You, you, you don't Please, think Doctor, you... don't jump to conclusions. Don't you see? There were five of you who were around the bar when all others had gone. They must be on the list of suspects, however vague. I suppose so. Well, uh, you're going to find out sooner or later. Perhaps uh, Westford knows it already. I uh, uh, wasn't strictly truthful when I said that Blake was a friend of mine. In fact, I rather disliked him. I met my wife whilst I was attending a medical congress in the States. It's a little dull for her here, so I've tolerated Blake. She liked him. I've had one or two rather violent scenes. His articles concerning my property companies. Yes, we know about that. No, Doctor, Paul was shot with his own gun, a Wesson 38. 
You were able to identify the weapon, weren't you? Yes, we all knew he kept a pistol when he stayed in one of the guest cottages. So it had not have been difficult for someone to creep in and steal it? I suppose not. But I didn't, and neither did Elizabeth. Now, you were called to the scene at approximately twelve minutes past two. Yes, yes. We had just retired for the night when Constable Fulton knocked on the door. He said that Paul Blake was dead, that he'd been shot. I slipped a dressing gown on over my pyjamas and rushed next door to the club. Now, your house is next door to the country club, hmm? Yes, yes. That's why the constable thought it would be quicker to come and fetch me than telephone. I see. Will you describe what happened when you got there? I, I've already given... Yes, a... yes, I know you've already given a statement, but please, bear with me. Well, I rushed next door. Uh, the place was in darkness except for a light in Paul's bungalow. It wasn't a pleasant sight. He was sprawled on the floor. There was a terrible wound in the back of his head. A pistol was lying some two or three feet away... And the telephone was off its socket and dangling down. In such cases, it's impossible to determine the exact time of death. He could have been killed at any time within the hour. Well, fortunately, the telephone operator heard the shot. Yes, of course. It must have been pretty terrifying. There were distinct powder marks from the shot around the mouthpiece. You realize that whoever killed him didn't do so for motives of robbery. Nothing was taken. When I saw all those pound notes and the watch on his dressing table, it sent a chill through me. I knew that our pleasant life at Marston was going to be disrupted with some ghastly scandal. You realize that going through my mind at this moment is the possibility that your wife killed him for some reason or other, and you could be swearing an alibi for her. What nonsense, Inspector. My wife liked him, I tell you. Still, I'm thankful that we've got a cast-iron alibi. That's what Westford called it, but I wonder if it's true. Doctor, I'm beginning to see light. Tell me what happened when the six of you had a final nightcap just before your departure. Well, we... Uh... Just a moment. Who's the we? Well, uh, there was Paul, of course. Terence and Margaret Armitage. Jack Fielding and us. Let me see. Terence Armitage, mm -hmm. club member. And the manager of the club, Jack Fielding. Huh? Go on. Well, uh, we'd uh, got into the habit of staying behind on Saturday nights and chin-wagging when everybody had gone home. Uh, it got a bit late. and I had one or two patients to see the following day. <laughs> I see the glasses are getting rather low. Come on, Jack, you make a... How, club manager? Nick Brown's on me. You can't help me if the staff's gone home. You'll have to be the last one. It's oh. five and twenty past one. I've got patience to see in a few hours. Oh, now, now, don't be such an old yeah, pussy foot. Oh, You're not calling on Mrs. Wagstaff until ten. Hey, Paul, huh? whatever happened to that character who used to run the press club in Chicago? What a ball of fire he was. Oh, yeah. Took to drink and pension off. Oh. Last heard of, he was beachcombing somewhere on the West Coast. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hey, it's funny you should ask about him. I, I forgot yes. his existence until last week when I pounded his name out on my typewriter. Hey? Oh, I saw a great deal of him when I was running our agency's bureau in Chicago. I was writing a paragraph on the riot. Called right. writing a book. Didn't you know? Uh-huh. His life story and brother has he got a story to tell. <laughs> Are you an authority on Paul Blake's life history? Well, maybe not an authority in his life history, but I, I reckon I made his life a little colorful for a few months. <laughs> when you say, Paul? Uh, don't you think it's, um, it's time you all went bye-bye? You mentioned my wife in your oh. book, Blake, and you'll regret it. Oh, dear. I think you're right. The party's getting rough. Come on, outraged husband. I'm afraid my wife was right. I did act like an outraged husband. I'd uh, had rather a lot to drink. I know that my wife has never been unfaithful to me. I've been jealous of the way she always looked up to Paul Blake and admired him, always uh, setting him up as a paragon of virtue. I 
Harry was a fine writer and all that. More than a fine writer, Doctor, a fine human being. I can't pretend to have known him as well as I would like to. I know, I know. I don't think I'm not sorry he's dead. I am. I know I get neurotic at times when my wife keeps mentioning the name Blake, but I'm sorry he's dead. Really, I am. I told you the rather drunken exchange of words because... Because you know that it'll come out anyway. But if your alibi is as watertight as all that, you have no need to worry. Have you? Watertight alibi or not, Dr. Ogden was the epitome of the nervous, worried object of police investigation, particularly when he saw me remove a press cutting from my notebook. I see that Paul Blake wrote a piece in the Weekly Chronicle concerning your property developments in this part of the world. Let me read it to you. In his um, country diary, he writes, It should be a matter of concern that the few relatively unscathed parts of our countryside are being eroded, not only by cold-eyed, thin-lipped property developers working by remote control from some plush office in the city, but by professional people whom one would have thought were impervious to the get-rich-quick-at-all-costs bug. Or should I use the word microbe, since the sentiments stem from a leading medical practitioner residing at Marston, a delightful little village nestling at the foot of the Cotswolds, where I spend many a weekend. This leading doctor first came into commercial prominence by acquiring land to build a clinic. So far, so good. But now he is seeking from the county council purchasing rights for the erection of flats and offices that will turn Marston into yet another ugly... Well, there's no need to go on, is there, Doctor? <clears throat> I understand that because of this article, certain of your friends on the county council took fright. They resigned from your development company and their planning committee threw out your application. It must have been a terrible financial blow for you, Doctor. I didn't kill him. And what is more, Inspector Whisper tells that me... That you were seen to enter your house about five minutes before the telephone operator heard the shot being fired. You forget one thing, Chief Inspector. My wife was seen too. Fair enough, Doctor. Besides, if I'd have killed Paul, would I have pointed to the powder marks around the mouthpiece of the telephone? Could be a subtle way to underline your innocence, except for one what thing. What do you mean by that? You reported, after examining the body, there were no powder marks around the bullet wound. Well, there weren't. Look, Chief Inspector. All right, all right. I won't detain you further. And as your friend the inspector says, you do seem to have a watertight alibi. For obvious reasons, the police suspect a husband who would swear that his wife was with him when she is suspected of perpetrating a crime elsewhere, or a wife who supplies an alibi for her husband. But in this case, there was a third person to swear that he saw a doctor and Mrs. Ogden enter their home at a time which made it impossible for them to have been the culprits. Was it the perfect alibi screening a diabolically cleverly planned act of murder? My next call was on the club manager, Mr. Jack Fielding, an almost stage caricature of the ex-guards officer reduced to having to run a country club. Shocking, old boy. Absolutely shocking. Paul used to come down every weekend he could spare. That uh, cottage he lived in was kept specially for him. Well, how many weekend cottages are there in the club grounds? Four, but no one uses them at this time of year. In fact, it's only our local members who use the club at all in the winter. The poor Blake came down because he said he liked the peace and quiet. Right, you, I don't think that was the only reason. Why do you say that? Well, a manager of a club must learn not to gossip, but um, Elizabeth Ogden was simply bonkers over him, you know. Why, even on the night the poor chap was shot, there was a bit of a, a contretemps, shall we say. Mind you, Chief Inspector, wait till you meet her. Gorgeous hunk of sex, that's one. 
I understand you were all in the clubhouse. You, the Ogdens, the Armitages, and Mr. Blake. Everyone else has gone home? Yes, that's right. And this cottage you occupy is about, oh, what would you say, two, three hundred yards from the clubhouse? Yes, something like that. Why, old chap? Because somebody shot Paul Blake dead. Somebody who knew he was in the cottage at the time, knew where he kept his gun. And until something else crops up, I must regard that somebody as belonging to your little drinking session. Oh, really? You sound like someone out of those detective yarns. Have you spoken to Inspector Westford? He wasn't killed by any of us. Could have been anyone on the grounds. Mr. Fielding, we have the exact times as given to me by Inspector Westford. Now, I understand you to say that you left soon after the departure of Dr. and Mrs. Ogden that night. Yes. Well, as you know, it uh, began to rain. The Armitages gave me a lift back to the cottage. According to your statement, you arrived back at your cottage at exactly half past one. Yes. Uh, you'd all been drinking rather a lot. How is it you were so sure as to the exact time of your arrival? Well, ask the Armitages. Please, Mr. Fielding, I'm asking you. Uh, because when they dropped me off, I... I made the expected gesture. What's that? Well, I asked them if they would like to come in for a snort, and Armitage said, no, thank you. He looked at his watch and said it was half past one, and they wanted to get home before the rain got really bad. They lived about some um, four miles out, and the road is rather dicey when it rains, isn't it? I see, thank you. One other little thing, though. In the statements made by Mr. Armitage and his wife, they say that they dropped you at the gate and drove off. They didn't actually see you go into the house. Uh, what does that mean, Inspector? Oh, come, come, sir. You're an intelligent man. I hear you retired from the Brigade of Guards with the rank of Major. Surely you must know the import of my question. You mean, did I run back to Paul's cottage and shoot him? No, I didn't. Besides, I can prove it. Prove it? Yes. You can ask Mrs. Thomas. Mrs. Thomas? I don't think I've been supplied with that name. I've been with the club since the flood. When she was too old to act as manageress kind of housekeeper, the club committee kept her on as... On the payroll to look after me. I see. Well, if she's that age, she'd hardly remain awake until your return. She was. Oh. Then perhaps I'd better question her. Mrs. Thomas was a diminutive, frail little lady dressed in clothes that would have been regarded as fashionable at the turn of the century. I was charmed at her appearance. Her grey hair, her blue eyes that twinkled at me over silver-rimmed spectacles, even her button-up boots that hardly reached the floor as she sat in her armchair. You, uh, you want to know about Mr. Fielding, about his alibi. Isn't that right, Chief Inspector Carr? Yes, it is. You corroborate his alibi. He says he was in this cottage when Mr. Blake was shot. Now, Mr. Blake was shot just after two o'clock. And Mr. Fielding says he was here, and indeed he was. Oh, do you always stay up late, waiting for him to return? Oh, good gracious, no. I hope he won't arrest him for it. Arrest him for what? Uh, for being, uh, uh, what is the phrase, uh, under the influence. The clatter that went on, it was enough to waken the dead. Oh, dear, I shouldn't have said that under the circumstances, should I? Clatter, Mrs. Thomas. Well, I was fast asleep, and, and there was this banging. Oh, good Christmas. What on earth is going on? Who's down there? Hope it isn't some wretched tramp. Mrs. Thomas? Mrs. Thomas? Oh, really, at this time of the morning. Coming! Coming! Oh. 
Really, Mr. Fielding, I thought you were being robbed. What is it? I saw you, girl, really, I am. I got this heartburn again. If I don't drink a glass of milk before I go to bed, I, I shall be uncomfortable all night. Really, <clears throat> you, you know where the milk is kept, Mr. Fielding. You only have to go to the refrigerator. Oh, sorry, old girl. Just as I suppose I, I've had more than I should have had tonight. Uh, the fridge, you say? So you see, Inspector, his alibi is perfect. I'm sure it must have been some outsider. Constable Fulton says that all those people who stayed behind at the bar drinking have all got perfect alibis. Well, Constable Fulton should learn that a good police officer refrains from gossip. Oh, dear, I do hope that I haven't got the young man into trouble. Oh, no, no, no. It's common knowledge in the village. They've all got perfect alibis. There are the Armitages. What better alibi can they have? As soon as they dropped your Mr. Fielding, they came across Sergeant Simpson, who lives at Oxley. But that's six miles away. That's the next village. His motorbike had broken down. They drove him home. And what better alibi can you have than a police sergeant sitting in the back seat at the time when the shot was fired? Tell me about Mr. Fielding. He's a bachelor, isn't he? Yes. Mrs. Thomas, I believe you can read my thoughts. You, uh, you think he killed Mr. Blake? Yes, Mrs. Thomas, I do. You, you think he deliberately created a noise, uh, asking for the milk for his heartburn in order that I should... Oh, dear. Oh, it's all so frightening. Mrs. Thomas, I asked Inspector Westford to call Mr. Fielding in for questioning because the Armitage's alibi is unbreakable and Dr. Ogden supplied me with enough information to convince me that he's innocent. That's why I'm concentrating on Mr. Fielding. Why are you looking at the telephone that has something to do with it, hasn't it? Yes, Mrs. Thomas. This must be one of the few parts of the country where they have these old-fashioned telephones with a receiver on a hook. I think that's going to play a very big part in the trial. I can't believe it. But why? Mrs. Thomas, I didn't know the circumstances of Fielding's alibi, other than the fact that you were awakened when you returned home. Now, I want to search this cottage. I can't without permission, because I haven't got a search warrant. Time is of the essence. You can either send me packing or let me search. Well, I, I suppose if he's innocent, it can't do any harm. And so I searched, and he wasn't innocent. There, amidst a pile of papers, I came across a cheque that was to be Exhibit A in the trial of Jack Fielding for the murder of Paul Blake. Now, this letter from Blake to you saying that you haven't kept your promise, you promised to pay £50 a month and you haven't for two months, and he was taking this cheque to the police. What are you talking about? It was just a private business arrangement. After you shot Blake in the back of the head, you removed the forged cheque from the cottage. You were asked for a loan of £50, and you turned it into 500 I... I got heavily at the races. I, I, I couldn't keep up with the payments. I, anyway, you're here for murder, not forgery. I didn't shoot him, and you can't prove I did. Mrs. Thomas was... Never mind, I... Mrs. Thomas. I've had two of my top boffins. We found powder marks in the bar, Mr. Fielding. There are minute drops of blood where poor Paul Blake fell when you killed him. It was a very clever, cunning plan, but it didn't come off, did it? You're coming with me, Jack Fielding, and I will... And so he was duly cautioned and taken to the nearest prison cells. But do you know what it was that made me realize that Fielding's alibi was capable of being broken? Confirmed by Mrs. Thomas's story of being awakened? An unfortunate journalist was shot in the back of the head 
and yet Dr. Ogden said that there were distinct traces of powder marks around the mouthpiece of the old-fashioned telephone. Now, the telephone exchange said they heard Fielding's voice, and him being shot at three minutes past two. How could he be shot in the back of the head, and yet there'd be powder marks on the mouthpiece of the telephone, into which he was supposed to be speaking? See it now. Fielding knew that no doctor could determine the time of death within the hour. He goes into the house, alters the clock by ten minutes, so that his housekeeper would state the time according to that clock, rushes back to the club, shoots Blake with a pistol he stole, drags him to the cottage, puts through the call, simulating Blake's voice, and fires the gun a second time next to the mouthpiece. Might have worked, too, if he hadn't fired the gun so close to the telephone as to leave the telltale marks. Cunning, but not cunning enough. The Epic Casebook was produced by Michael Silver for the makers of Epic Pure Sunflower Oil, Maple Margarine, Yum Yum Peanut Butter, and Niblet's Cheese Twists, with Hugh Russ as Inspector Carr. Listen again next Thursday night at 9.30 to another exciting story from our Epic Casebook. Book.